0: We're going to be continuing on in Genesis. And in a couple minutes, we'll read through a portion of chapter 11. Um, but I just wanted to say something as we get into Genesis again, just about the big picture of this. Some of you have been here the last several weeks as we're now in the sixth week of going through the book of Genesis. Um, But some of you may, this may be your first week of it, or you may have just missed some different weeks. Um, So I want to just, first of all, talk about it. If you're not aware, the way we're going through the book of Genesis is a little bit different than how we normally go through books of the Bible, where we're taking kind of big chunks. And what we're doing is like, for example, today, we're taking chapters 10 and 11 of the book, but we're going to focus in on one part of it. So each week we'll be zeroing in. We'll kind of be focusing in on one specific passage, but also looking to keep the big picture of the book in mind as we go through it. Because in Genesis, we we deal with really transcendent themes that are from the beginning. And and it's possible, I'm not going to say this is true for sure, but for some of you, you might be thinking, all right, there's a lot of problems in the world and we're going through Genesis. Genesis. Like we're, we're dealing with hunger and violence and racism and you know, like all these different things and we're going through Genesis. But what I want to say is the themes we are going through in Genesis are transcendent themes that set the foundation for how we deal with the deepest problems in ourselves and in our world. When we deal with Genesis, we're asking and, and having answered for us the questions about who is God, who are we, What is this world and what is life all about? If we are looking to deal in a really powerful way with the biggest questions of our lives and of society, this is a profound book that leads us to have have a greater understanding and solid footing on who God is, who we are, what this world is, and what our lives are all about. So we're going to be in chapter 11 today. I'm going to, in a moment, read verses, uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. Once again, Genesis is easy to find. Open your Bible. Then just go to page 11. Chapter 11 of Genesis. Um, we'll, we'll have the verses up here on the screen also, so that if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along there. So start reading Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now, the whole world had one language And a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves." Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over, the, over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. This is God's Word. Let's pause and let's pray together before we walk through this passage. Father, we know we've spent some time this past week giving you thanks, and we spent some time these past minutes in prayer giving you thanks, but we still recognize we, Father, we've not scratched the surface of what we could thank you for. We are breathing because of you. Thank you. We have life because of you. Thank you. We have a place to come and worship because of you. Thank you. We have these scriptures, your word, because you have spoken. Thank you for speaking. And thank you most of all for speaking through your son, Jesus. Thank you that we have adoption into your family and eternal life because of you. Thank you, Father. And we thank you that this morning we get to gather. And we pray that this would not be simply a gesture. We pray that you speak to us. And we pray that you speak in a way that's unmistakable. I pray that you lead me in each thing that I say, guide me towards things I haven't planned to say and guide me away from things that I have planned to say, but that you don't want for us this morning. Lead us as we approach your word in Jesus name. Amen. This is a story that's typically called the Tower of Babel. And, you know, if we're looking at Genesis as as a book that, amongst other things, is about origins. We could say, all right, well, this is a story that tells us how we got all our different languages, how we went from a point where there was just one language that everybody had to the point that we're at today where there's all kinds of different languages. Um, And that's true, that that is part of the story, but that's not the point of the story, and we're going to miss the big picture if we simply think this is an origin story about all the different languages. Because ultimately what this story is about is what happens to people, and specifically what God does... When human beings exalt themselves. Now, just to get around what I'm talking about with human beings exalting themselves, here's what I mean. We exalt ourselves anytime we make our fame, our glory, or our agenda more important to us than God's fame, God's glory, and God's agenda. Exalting ourselves can be loud... And it can be braggartly, or as we're going to talk about, it can be quiet and it can be subtle. But it's something that at some level, all of us crave to do. We crave to exalt ourselves because we want to be exalted. We want to be important. And typically, the only way we see that possibility coming to fruition (laughs) is if we exalt ourselves. And if you look at the story of the Tower of Babel, in, in one way you could say, well, this is a story about a party that God crashed. This is a story about a bunch of people that were going to do something great, but God interrupted them because he crashed the party. But what I want to suggest is that God didn't crash this party. God was invited to this party. And the reason why I say God was invited to this party is because when we exalt ourselves, we invite God to humble us. God got an engraved invitation to this party. The people were going to make themselves great. They were going to exalt themselves. It was almost as if they were begging God to come and humble them. And he was more than willing to oblige. We're going to walk through this passage, and as we walk through it, we're going to see that this isn't just a story about something that happened a long time ago. This is a story for us today. This is a story for us to deal with as we deal with pride and with the craving that we have to spread our name to other people. And it kind of unfolds in a simple way that there's really kind of two big parts in one middle section. But what we'll see at the beginning is we'll see that the temptation To exalt ourselves is not something that just happened with the people of the Tower of Babel. It's something that happens for us also today. So we'll start with that. We start with the temptation for exaltation. Verse 1 says, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And just to summarize where we are, last week we talked through the flood story, and that kind of culminates in chapter 9. And then after chapter 9, we have a couple chapters that talk about the spreading out of people afterwards. So that's chapters 10 and 11. We have a lot of genealogies. It's not necessarily the most exciting part of the Bible to read. But if you were to read through chapter 10, you'd see all these different generations coming from Noah's three sons, from Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And, and just for the sake of kind of chronology, because we get to chapter 11 and we're not told, well, when exactly did this happen or where does this fit into the surrounding things? We don't exactly know, but I'll throw out to you a suggestion. And if you have an open Bible, open up to Genesis chapter 11, you can probably look back just earlier on the same page. Genesis chapter 10, verse 25 says this, two sons were born to Aber. One was named Peleg because in his time, the earth was divided. This is not for certain, but this is pretty certain that earth being divided is referring to this event, referring to the spreading out of the nations because their languages were confused. Now, if that's true, and if we're doing kind of our genealogies right, and this is mainly just so that you can win a Bible quiz show someday, then this is happening, then Peleg is Noah's great, great, great grandson. We're talking about five or six generations after the flood is when we reach this story. And just a note on this, the, the first two verses start off innocuously enough, just about people spreading out. But look in verse two, it says, as the people moved eastward. This is just a note. You may have picked this up in the reading through Genesis. East is significant. It comes up several times. When Adam and Eve are banished from the garden, God sets up an angel to guard the garden so that they don't come back in. Anyone want to guess which side of the garden the angel is on? The east side. Good job. That was a gimme. (laughs) When Cain is banished from the land because he killed his brother Abel, it's told that he famously settled, famously because of John Steinbeck, east of Eden. All right, a couple of you got that. He settles east of Eden. We're, we're, we'll get to this in a little while. This is the last week of Genesis before we take a break for Advent. And then in January, we'll be back in Genesis. But in Genesis 13, we're into, a little bit into the story of Abraham. And Abraham and Lot are blessed by God. And they keep multiplying in all kinds of livestock. They're getting really big. They're getting really rich. And so they decide to split up. And Abraham, because he trusts God, gives Lot the choice. He says, you choose where to go and I'll go in the opposite direction. Guess which direction Lot goes. He goes east, and he ends up in Sodom. Bad things happen. East, at least in these early chapters of Genesis, seems to be an indication. The author is subtly letting us know that there's a greater separation from God happening as people move to the east. So even when we see that at the beginning, that they were moving eastward, that's a little signal to us, this is going to be bad. This is not going to be a happy story. This is not going to be a story about people doing godly things. This is a story about people distancing themselves from God. And we get an explanation of that when we get into verse 3. It says, they said to each other, come, let's make make bricks um, and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And just the, the starting point, you might think, what, why in the world is this verse even here? Why do we need to know about them baking bricks? Why do we need to know about bricks instead of stone? Most likely, the reason this is put in here is because, first of all, this practice of using the bricks instead of the stone was different than the Israelite practice. So it's talking about they were doing something different in Mesopotamia during this time than the Israelites would have done. But I think the second reason why it's mentioned here about the bricks and the mortar is because it's indicating to us that what the people are about to do is not simply to set up a temporary settlement. They're setting up a more permanent situation for themselves. And that's described in verse 4. It says, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. So this is a description of what they want to do. Now, first of all, a city, typically in this time, was not a place that people lived. They would live outside of the city, but the city is where they would come to do business and to have culture and to practice religion. And so they want to build a city so that they're more settled rather than wandering around place to place. They're going to build a city and they're going to build a tower in it that reaches to the heavens. And most scholars think that the tower that's being referenced here is something that's typically called a ziggurat. And it's not just any tower. It's not just sort of a tower that you would have in a city. It's a tower that specifically has religious purposes. And the goal of the ziggurat is that it was a giant staircase that led up to heaven so that the gods could come down and go back up on it. So the idea here is that these people are saying, we are going to connect heaven and earth. And in some ways, you might think, well, that's not so bad. I mean, they're they're wanting to have a connection with God or with the gods or wanting to be a part of something divine. Maybe so far, this doesn't sound like some deeply pernicious thing. What's the problem? The problem is indicated to us by what's said next. So that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So apparently the thinking here is if we continue to scatter and just sort of live in caves and live around rocks and live in places where we can just get by, just survive and just make sure that we're not attacked by other people or by animals, we'll never get famous. But if we stick together and we build a city and we build a tower to the heavens, we will make a name for ourselves instead of being scattered over the whole face of the earth. And let me just say, this whole idea of we will make a name for ourselves it might not be the way that we talk today, but this is something deeply entrenched in the human heart. We all want to make a name for ourselves. One of my favorite books in the Old Testament is the book of Ecclesiastes. And I think one of the most profound things said in the book of Ecclesiastes is in chapter 3. What the author says is, God has placed eternity into the human heart. And then he follows that up basically by saying, but we can't figure God out. And what he means by God has placed eternity into the human heart is he's saying, we know we were made for more than just to live for a while and then return to dust we know that we have some purpose beyond just the way that we live. And some of the, well, one of the things that cracks me up in this day and age is we have some really just ardent, outspoken atheists. And yet most of these ardent, outspoken atheists will still talk about things that we should do today to benefit generations down the line. Here's my deal. I may just be an incredibly selfish person. But every time some ardent atheist says we need to do something to benefit humanity three or four generations down the line, I have one simple question. Why? You won't be here. Maybe all of you are thinking, but that's no reason. That is a reason. You're not going to be around. You're not going to enjoy. You're not going to know what your kids or your grandkids are experiencing. Here's my point. Even an ardent atheist knows God has placed eternity in our hearts. And that doesn't just mean that we're supposed to live forever. That means that we're supposed to be a part of something that outlasts us. And we all want to be a part of something that outlasts us. This is where a lot of the great art in our world comes from. That people are saying, I I want to be remembered. I want to create something. I want to create a sculpture or a painting or a book or a poem or a song that will last beyond me. Even for some of us, when we're thinking of our family and we're wanting to have kids and we're wanting to have grandkids, there's some part of us that says, I I want to last beyond, I want my influence in this world, I want my dent in this world to last beyond the years that I'm simply here. We all want to make a name for ourselves. It might be loud or it might be subtle. I will just tell you, one of the reasons why it's indicated that we all want to make a name for ourselves is because most of us, I don't think it's just me, Most of us have a real hard time when we do something good and we don't get credit for it. Most of us crave the attention. We crave the positive reinforcement. In fact, I'll tell you a quick story about how this was illustrated to me. This was a bunch of years ago. Um, Karina and I had had been married just for a little while, and my brother was dating this girl. And, uh, And it was clear she was the right girl for him. In fact, she was too good for him. It was like, you got to lock this down. you got to do something here before she realizes she could do better than you. <laughs> uh. And really, like if you knew, my, my brother would say this too. I'm not insulting my brother by saying this. Um, and, uh, and I was talking to him about it because they, they were both getting ready to graduate college and it just seemed like, all right, clearly they're, they should get engaged and get married. And I had a conversation with him about it. And he said, well, you know, like, we both still kind of want to do some stuff. And we want to explore a little bit and and see the world. And, you know, so so we're going to wait maybe a year, maybe two years. And and then we'll kind of see what happens. And I just remember thinking, you are a fool. This is crazy talk. You've got this girl right here. Your relationship is great. You love each other. You're clearly headed towards marriage. Why in the world would you delay? But I didn't say any of those things to him. I just calmly had a conversation and started asking him questions. And, and then eventually, because I love my brother, I, I just sort of made a case. And I laid out to him about four different reasons why it would make, make much more sense to just proceed with marriage now instead of doing all of these things in between. I mean, it was a great conversation. He was like, all right, I'm going to have to think about it. And, and we split ways. And about three weeks later, we were talking on the phone. As we were talking on the phone, I asked him, how are things going with Ruby, with with the woman he's married to now? And uh, and he said, well, you know, I thought a lot more about the plans and I decided it makes a lot more sense to kind of move towards marriage now instead of doing all these other things. And then he named off about four reasons that he had come up with on his own (laughs) for why this was the way to go. I'll just say, I should have been very happy for him. This is my brother. Good things are happening. He's going to marry this great woman. But I was fuming on the phone. I was biting my tongue. It took everything within me not to say, are you kidding me? Those are exactly the things I told you. So I had to wait 15 years and tell all of you because somebody needs to know. (laughs) Somebody's got to realize this happened. Now here's the, that's a silly extreme case, but this is part of how we live. Why did I want credit? Why did I even care? Because God has put eternity in my heart. I want to believe that I'm having a dent beyond what's going on in my life right now. And we all seek that out. We all seek to have an impact beyond the right here and now. We all want to make a name for ourselves. And sometimes it's in a big, loud way. And sometimes it's in a subtle way. So I'll just say, for some of you, the thing you're going to have to look out for, you're going to read this story about the Tower of Babel and you're going to say, that's kind of me. I want to be famous. I want to get my name out there. I want to get my face out there. I want people to know who I'm. I struggle with being kind of a bit too much of a braggart. Like, I'm more loud with how I'm trying to get a name for myself. And some of you might be thinking, well, I don't do that at all. I don't try to get a lot of attention for myself. And what I'd say is, your danger then may be That you are exalting yourself in your own heart. Maybe nobody else even knows that it's happening. But to me, one of the most profound parables that Jesus ever gave was in Luke eighteen, and it's typically called the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. Where they both go to the temple to pray. And if you're familiar with the parable, you know that it says of the Pharisee that when he goes to pray, and it's not totally clear in the Greek, he's either praying about himself or to himself. Either way, God isn't really needed for this prayer because a Pharisee goes and prays and he prays, God, thank you so much that I'm not like all of those other people. Thank you so much that I'm not like those adulterers. Thank you so much that I'm not like those swindlers. Thank you so much. I'm not like that tax collector who's a traitor to our people. Thank you so much that I'm better than other people. He exalts himself, even if there's nobody else to hear the self-exaltation. And for some of you, you might be thinking, oh, I, don't, I don't really get a lot of attention. I'm not trying to get famous in this world. But the question is, are you exalting yourself in your own heart? In fact, I'll just throw this out here. We all just celebrated Thanksgiving. There are probably some of you that spent all weekend saying, ah, God, thank you so much. I am not like my parents. Thank you so much, I'm not like my sister. Thank you so much, I'm not like these other people. And you're privately despising people, not because it's fun to despise people, but because when you despise people and bring them low, your status goes up we crave self-exaltation. When we look at the Tower of Babel, it's not hard to understand why this happened. We want to be great. This is why we constantly are given awards to each other in our culture. It's bizarre. But then again, it's not bizarre because we crave greatness. We crave exaltation. Now, in the story of the Tower of of Babel, we kind of have two parts. I mean, really, we we have the part that we've already read, the lead-up, the temptation to self-exaltation, and then we have the aftermath. But in between those two parts, we have just one verse that ties it together and one verse that's really at the crux of the matter. And that's that between the, the temptation and the humiliation, we have the visitation. We have God coming and visiting It says, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. We're not even told yet what God does. We'll get to that in verses 6 through 9. But here, we're just told God came down to the city and the tower that the people were building. Now, a couple notes. First of all, as we look at this, um, this is what's typically, typically called an anthropomorphism, which simply means this is a way of describing God in a way that more relates to human terms. God is everywhere. God doesn't need to come down. Just as when God comes to Adam and Eve in the garden and says, where are you? Or when God comes to Cain in chapter four, after Cain's killed his brother and says, where's your brother? God really knows the answers to these questions, but he's engaging with human beings. Similar here, we're told that God came down. You can say, why does God need to come down? He doesn't need to come down, but there's a story reason. I'm absolutely convinced there's a story reason why this term is used. Now just think again about what the people are doing. They are building a tower, and the tower is going to be so impressive, and it's going to be so high that it reaches to the heavens. And when God wants to check up, check out this tower, what direction does he need to go? He needs to go down to find it. This is a subtle but powerful way of us being reminded God is deeply unimpressed with the things that impress us. In fact, even the fact that God is sort of faded as, well, I better go find out what's going on here. God is the last one to know what's going on here. This is a big deal. Everybody knows what's going on with the Tower of Babel. People are buying tickets to come and check this thing out. It is the number one trending topic on Twitter. Somebody's over on the side selling churros to people who are coming in to check out the Tower of Babel because everybody knows that this is going on. And God's saying, oh, something's happening down there. Let's go find out what it is. God is unimpressed with our self-exaltation. In fact, he has to come down to check out the thing that we think we're building to reach to him. And this is just a reminder, even of the the different things that we get transfixed by. We had a, it wasn't even a month ago, it was like three weeks ago, we had our midterm elections. And oh my gosh, the midterm elections. The world will clearly turn on what a bunch of Americans in the 21st century do with their ballots. God is unimpressed with what we do in our midterm elections. God is unimpressed with us when we say, not only are you a good actor, you are the best actor. Not only are you a good football player, you're the most valuable football player. Not only this year did you make a great record, you made the record of the year. God is unimpressed with the things that we do to exalt ourselves or to show how great we think we are. And let me just throw out something because this ties into even what we've done this past weekend. When you have pride, which is really what it means to exalt yourselves, when you have pride pride. You rob yourself of the chance to have gratitude. Because after all, why would you give thanks if you're the one who did it? Remember, this was like 15 years ago. I mean, he's still in the league. Carmelo Anthony, who's been a great basketball player for a long time, When he was drafted out of college, he was a great college player, he'd won a national championship, and he was drafted number three. And when he was drafted, usually these guys get up and they talk about mom and dad who got me here and all my coaches and all the players who helped me get here. Carmelo Anthony, when he came up to the microphone, said, well, first and foremost, I would like to thank myself because I worked really hard to get myself to this point. I just remember being struck. I mean, I laughed out loud. I was like, did I just hear that right? I'm thinking, well, that's also probably what half of the other guys are thinking in their heads. They're just saying something different. But it was so striking because he didn't thank anybody because in his mind, there was nobody to thank. Pride robs us of gratitude. So even as you're thinking about this past weekend and if you're like, gosh, this is a hard year, a lot of tough stuff happened. I don't really know what I have to be thankful for. Maybe that's because you think all the good things in your life are in your life because of you. They're not. Everything we have is a gift from God. Right between the temptation and between the humiliation, we have the visitation. And by the way, sometimes we'll say things like, you know what, you got this young person and they're really proud, they're really full of themselves, but you know what, life will humble them. And I just wanna challenge that for a second because this is not a story about life humbling people. This is a story about God Humbling people. God takes an active role in this. When we exalt ourselves, we invite God to humble us, and He's normally happy to oblige. So, in the final verses, we have the humiliation. Verse 6 says, so The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language. So that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. God didn't have any difficulty with humbling the people. That's at least the first thing that we can see. When God decided to create, you know what he did? He spoke, and it happened. When God decides to humble, he simply does it, and it happens. It's not difficult for God to humble those who exalt themselves, but I want you to notice something else in here that's really powerful. God didn't look at the people and say, they're trying to build this impressive tower, but it's never going to work. It's never going to work. They're fools. It's never going to work. It's never going to make them famous. It's never going to make their name great. So I'll go and confuse their language because this is never going to work. Did God say this is never going to work? Oh, he basically said this is going to work. They are powerful when they have all one language. Not only are they going to probably succeed in doing this, they're going to succeed in all kinds of other things that they undertake together. God doesn't look at them and say, I need to stop them because they're going to fail. He says, I need to stop them because they're going to succeed. Which may make us take a pause and say, what's with that? I mean, is, is God like some insecure, petty God who's like, oh no, they're going to get too big. I can't have any competition. Can God not handle them succeeding? Why does God look at their success as something to be thwarted? I want to answer that question. And the reason God does this is not because God is a petty, insecure God who can't handle the competition. The reason that God does this is because God is in the business of refusing all of our self-made towers that veil our eyes from seeing the only one who can truly save us. Just think about the way that we do this in our lives. We may not be building a literal tower But we are all building towers with our own resources. So yours might be your reputation. You might be saying, all right, well, I'm not going to be like these people in Tower of Babel, but I'm going to make a reputation for myself. And you know what? Long after I'm gone, people are still going to know my name because my name is going to be on my company. And long after that, people will still talk about the things that I accomplished here on this earth. You're building a brand. You're building your tower of your reputation and of your name afterwards. And some of you might be more kind of simple in your taste and might be thinking, all right, I don't need to build a big reputation for my name, but I'm building my family. And the way that I know I have significance in this world is because of my family and my kids will have kids and there will be grandkids and they'll tell stories about grandma and grandpa and all the things that they did. I'm building my significance. I'm showing that I matter in this world because of my family. I'm showing that I matter in this world because of my art. I'm showing that I matter in this world because of my accomplishments, because of my awards, because of my money. I'm showing that my name matters in this world because of the tower that I have built. And what God frequently does is he smashes our towers. And that's debilitating to us. And we look at God and we say, why would you do this? And God's answer to us would basically be this. Because your tower will never reach heaven. And you will waste your time climbing and waiting and realizing that you can never get what your heart is truly after. The way that heaven and earth are connected is not by things that we do. The way that heaven and earth are connected is by something that God does. In fact, let me give you a preview. It'll be a couple months until we're there. But in Genesis chapter 28... Jacob lays down to sleep, and when he lays down to sleep, he has a dream, and the dream is the dream that inspired Led Zeppelin, 1900-whatever years later. He, He sees a stairway or a ladder between heaven and earth, and angels are going down and coming up on this ladder, and Jacob realizes in this moment God is in this place because heaven and earth are connected. Now, here's the point. Jacob had not connected heaven and earth. Jacob was in a spot where God had chosen to connect the two. You are never going to experience eternity because of a tower that you build. You will only experience eternity if you respond to who God sent to connect heaven and earth. We can only be part of God's family because we respond to the fact that he sent his son to rescue us and to promise us eternal life. God is unimpressed with our accomplishments. He's unimpressed with the things that transfix us. He smashes our towers, not out of his deep, insecure jealousy, but out of his deep kindness so that we are undistracted. In fact, there's a powerful story in the book of 2 Corinthians where the apostle Paul talks about a gift that God gave him. And the gift is what he calls the thorn in the flesh. Now, is that on your Christmas list? (laughs) Paul says, God gave me a thorn in the flesh. But then he tells us why God gave him the thorn in the flesh. And we don't know what it is, if it it was a physical ailment or, or if that's an illustration. We don't know what it is. All we know is it's something that Paul said, I asked God three times to take it away and God didn't take it away. Paul didn't want this gift, but God gave it to him as a gift. And here's why we know it's a gift. It's because Paul says, he gave it to me, To keep me humble. Paul had been through a lot. Paul had spread the message and started churches and seen visions and done miracles. And it could have been very easy for Paul to begin to exalt himself, but God gave him a gift. And the gift was an ailment of some kind that kept Paul with the firm understanding that he was utterly dependent on God for everything in his life. And here's what I want to say. You may be facing some really hard things right now. I'm not going to presume to know all the reasons why God does the things that he does or all the different reasons why we experience suffering and hardship in our lives. But what I do want to say is one thing that you should consider if you're suffering hardship or disappointment right now is that it may be that God is smashing one of your towers so that you recognize it's never going to get you there. And for everything in your life, you're utterly dependent on God. When we exalt ourselves, we invite God to humble us. And not only is he powerful enough to do that, but he's kind enough to do that for us. And, and let me give you a couple of suggestions here for how we look at a story like this, this ancient story and how we respond to it today. And, and the first response is this. Try to wrestle with the question of what you need to repent of. There may be some thoughts There may be some actions, there may be some pursuits that are absolutely all about you exalting yourself. All about you making yourself great in your own eyes or in the eyes of the people around you and you simply need to repent. Your agenda has been to exalt yourself and make yourself as comfortable or as rich or as famous as you can. And God is calling you to repentance. You know what? It's much easier to humble yourself than it is to have God humble you. This is real life stuff. There's some repentance that needs to happen for all of us to say, you know what, I've made my fame, I've made my glory, and frankly, I've made my agenda for my life the center of my universe. God is the center of the universe. God is the one who's eternal, and so I'm going to repent of these things and fix my eyes on Him. But the second thing that I want to suggest beyond what do we need to repent from is what do we need to realign? Because it may go further than not just saying, God, I'm really sorry that I had those thoughts. God, I'm really sorry that I said that thing. Maybe that we need to look at our lives and say, you know what? I have set my life up in a way that my agenda is crowding out God's. And it's time to make some changes. It's time to make some changes with the way that we handle our money. It's time to make some changes with the way that I talk to other people. It's time to make some changes with the ways that I handle social media. It's time to make some changes with the job that I'm pursuing and the the strength with which I'm pursuing it. It's time to make some changes and to realign my life so that God truly is at the center of my pursuits, that I'm acting in light of the reality that God is the one who only ultimately deserves to and should be exalted. Let's pray together. Father, thank you once again. We have every good thing we have in our lives only because of you. We we repent of believing that it's because we're better than others or because it's our own work or because it's our own brains or our own strength, sweat. Father, everything we have is from you. And I pray in this moment, that you lead us towards the humility of recognizing that. Father, I pray that you lead us through the kindness to repentance where we need to repent. I pray that you lead us as a result of this story to apologize to people that we've wronged, to rectify things that we've messed up and to make adjustments in our lives so that you are really at the center and our agenda takes a back seat to what your agenda for us is. Father, thank you that you smash our towers, not out of cruelty, but that you smash them out of kindness. Thank you that you show us the emptiness of our own pursuits, and you show us that you're the only one who truly connects heaven and earth. Father, I pray that we would live in such a way that we are banking on the reward that you bring, the eternity that you bring, and not the cheap kind that we try to carve for ourselves. We pray this in the name of our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.